0: Exodus 34, this is the last Sunday morning in Exodus we'll spend. Wednesday night we're going to hit 35 through 40 and be done with the book of Exodus. I know what you're saying. You're saying five chapters in one night. Yeah, right. Well, show up and I'll prove it to you. But this morning we're in Exodus chapter 34. We'll begin reading, oh, about verse 5. Exodus 34, verse 5. Jeff, to your left over there. Everybody warm enough? Yeah. <laughs> Exodus 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the clouds. And stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. You recall Moses now has gone up the mountain. He's asked God, show me your glory. And God is about to do that. Tells us the Lord descended in the cloud. Stood there with him, with Moses, as he called upon the name of the Lord. Which is kind of cool that he was standing there with Moses as he descended in the cloud. Two places at once. That's our God. Verse 6. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord... The Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, yet He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. And Frank says God is love? Let me just read that verse to you one more time. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations doesn't sound a lot like love to me. We probably better pray before we talk about this one. Lord, Lord this is one of those passages we need to uh, deal with. I'm thankful, Father, for Your Word. And I'm thankful especially that there are places in Your Word that cause us to stop, come to a shrieking halt, and recognize that we don't understand. And I'm thankful, Holy Spirit, that You have given us hearts and minds that can understand. And I pray for that this morning, understanding, illumination, and revelation as to what these things are saying. That we might understand your grace and your nature and your love, Lord, a little better. Open our eyes this morning, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, yesterday, no, actually it was Friday, I guess it was, my family, we went down to North Beach, with the island, had a great time, Reggie the Wonder Dog, ran amok, he had a blast, his first time down on the beach, we could hardly keep hold of him, but at one point, something absolutely miraculous happened. Cheryl, who's sitting in the back, if you want to look at her, <laughs> Cheryl skipped a stone for the first time. What do you think about that? Huh? Huh? Pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah. She was We got the whole thing on video. In fact. Do you have that? We want to go ahead and play that. right? No. I'm kidding. <laughs> she would kill me. But it was a she's out there We're trying to, I'm trying to show her how she's like I can't do it you know she'd throw it and go plop but finally she goes out to the water and Corey this guy's a little video camera with him and he goes mom try it one more time and she goes okay I'll try it one more time and she goes boom and he goes boom 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 and she goes yes 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 alright yes we do have that on film come over I'll show it to you sometime Cheryl was skipping stones you see the, the idea and the reason why skipping stones is so difficult for so many people is you gotta get down level with the water you want to skim it right across the surface. You don't want to throw it in, plop it, go straight in. You don't want to lob it. you got to get level, real even with the water. You almost want that real smooth skimming stone to be just right above the water as you throw it. So as it lands the first time, it continues to skip across the top. Kind of like Apollo 13. You remember Apollo 13. They had all kinds of problems, and as the ship is coming back to Earth, there are a million problems, a million things that could still go wrong before the three astronauts uh, piloted by Jim Lovell could make it safely to Earth. And one of the last things they realized that was a problem is they might be coming in too shallow. If they came in too shallow like a skipping stone, they would bounce right off the edge of the Earth's atmosphere and on out into space, and they would never have been seen again. Can you even imagine that kind of a tragedy? I mean, shuttle crashes that we've experienced and seen have been tragic, but they've been instantaneous. Can you imagine three men in a spacecraft coming back, trying to make it back, and bouncing off the Earth's atmosphere alive and heading out into space? But people do it all the time. People do it all the time. They come to the Word of God, but they come in so shallow, they bounce right off the edge of it and out into outer space, and they're lost. The Word of God is not a book that's meant to be read lightly, just to be skimmed and bounced right off of. And too many Christians, too many people do this with God's Word. We come to verses like this, that He will by no means please the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the grandchildren of the third and fourth generations. We go, oh, I don't understand that, Skip. That's too hard for me, Skip. I, I think I'll just go on to something else. Bounce. And we miss one of the most valuable lessons in all of Scripture right here. And so we're going to pause this morning and check this out. It's hard teaching. And I want you to understand that right up front. I struggled with this. I struggled with it the very first time we read it. You might recall, I'll read this to you, Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20, verses 5 and 6. In the Ten Commandments. God has just said in verse 4, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness. In verse 5 he says, You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. And we see that and we go, Oh, quick, get to the next commandment, Skip. (laughs) Because it's hard teaching. Could it possibly be saying that God looks at the sin of Grandpa and says, I am going to nail the son for that. I'm going to get the grandsons. You see, Grandpa messed up. And it was too big a sin just to punish him for it. I'm going to wait till grandson comes along and I'm going to hammer him as well. Is it possible God is saying, Hey, Dad, you messed up. And your children and your children's children and your children's children's children are you going to pay for it big time. I am going to nail them. Now, no one wants to really believe that about God. And yet we kind of do. So I shared on Wednesday night. It's kind of like George in Seinfeld saying to his therapist, "I believe in God for the bad things," and so many people do. Well, if bad things happening, and this happened to my father, that must just be you know I'm just stuck with it. I have to deal with Dad's sin. I got to deal with Grandpa's sin, and that's not what this verse is saying at all. But it's hard teaching. It's hard to get there. I I can relate. There are times where, where I relate to the guy who wrote Hebrews. I believe it was Paul. He said at one point in the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Harry Potter 6 just came out. Did you know that? I'm sure you did. The Christian community has no idea really how to deal with Harry Potter. So we write books about it. The Gospel According to Potter by Connie Neal is actually a good book. Or, what's a Christian to do with Harry Potter? Can I tell you what a Christian is to do with Harry Potter in one simple word? Discern. Discern. Don't freak out, run away. Oh, oh, don't let that in the house. Discern. Discern. Talk to your kids about it. Don't pretend that witchcraft isn't something that exists in this world. It does. It's real. Talk about it. Deal with it. What does the Bible have to say about it? Discern. The Hebrew writer wants to tell the people that he sent the letter to, he wants to tell them something about this guy named Melchizedek. We'll talk about him another time. But he can't. And the reason he can't, he says, is because his readers are not mature. They're like babies; they won't get it. And he goes on later in chapter six and seven of the book of Hebrews to say, "Okay, I'm going to tell you about him, but you're not going to. Some of you are going to totally miss this. Some of you are not going to hear it. I pray that that is not the case this morning. We need to understand what is going on here. Now, this bothers me. This whole idea of, of God's vengeance, and too many people view God as a lightning bolt, vengeful God, and yet." Frank was right. He's not. Not even close. I want you to notice a couple of things. We're going to look at some stuff this morning related to this verse. But look at the verse again. A couple of things to know just about the verse in its wording. Digging down, getting in. It says, God keeps loving kindness for thousands, forgives the iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Stop. The two words, the guilty, don't belong in the verse they are not there in the original Hebrew translation in the original Hebrew language they were added by the translator so you can pull those two out of there right now and as a matter of fact anytime in the Bible you see words in italics it's likely they were added in the New American Standard Version that I teach out of they're added any time italicized words are there they weren't there in the original and I like to as I study totally leave them out and read the verse without them who keeps loving kindness for thousands and forgives iniquity transgression and sin yet he will by no means Leave unpunished. See, you know what? still doesn't sound great. It still sounds like there's no forgiveness. It still it still sounds a little rough. Well, then you look a little deeper. That whole entire phrase, He will by no means leave unpunished, is two words in Hebrew. The two words are, Lo Naka. Literally, no erasing. No erasing. No erasing. No <coughs> erasing. Gang, the problem with saying no erasing ties into the second half of the verse is it doesn't fit the picture of what we're reading. Listen to it read this way. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands, forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. No erasing, visiting the iniquity of the fathers. See, the, the reason why the translators added the guilty is they wanted to tie into the last part of the verse. I think that's a mistake. Because in the context of what we're reading, I believe the words no erasing tie into the first half of the verse. It doesn't fit the context to have it the other way. I'm a loving, compassionate, gracious God, God says, but I'm going to bust you wide open for what your parents have done. Doesn't fit, does it? But for him to say, I am forgiving, I forgive transgression and sin that I keep loving kindness, but there is no erasing my compassion, no erasing my graciousness, no erasing slowness to anger, no erasing my abundant loving kindness, my truth, my forgiveness. There is no erasing these things. I will not erase these things. I think that's what the no erasing is connected to. What makes you say that? How can we know, Rick? Well, let's do a little journey through the Bible. Three things I want to give you this morning to help us sort this out. If you're a note taker, and I would encourage you to be because that helps get into the word. It helps you go deeper. Number one, we're going to look at an irresponsible proverb. The book of Ezekiel, chapter 18. If you'd like to flip over there, please do so. Ezekiel 18. An irresponsible proverb. An irresponsible proverb. Look at Ezekiel chapter 18. A little pass midway through the Bible if you're flipping there. In Ezekiel's day there was a saying. There was a proverb that went around that expressed this idea that children often paid for the sins of the father. And this is how it reads: Ezekiel 18 verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me saying, What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel? Saying, The fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. That's the irresponsible proverb. Daddy's the great son's keeper set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. How clear is that? This is not how things work, God says. The father sins, the son does not pay for it. But he goes on, he wants to make it more clear. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father, as well as the soul of the son, is mine. The soul whose sins will die. But if a man is righteous and practices justice and righteousness and does not eat of the mountain tribes, and he goes on to talk about holiness... The sins of the father visited on the sins of the children. Listen. God says you will not use this irresponsible proverb. Jamie Booth was one of my favorite kids. Cheryl and I were in youth ministry in Virginia at the time. And Jamie Booth was just hysterical. She hung out. We met her as a junior higher. She started coming to our group and stayed all the way through high school. But Jamie had an interesting relative. John Wilkes Booth. Jamie was related to the man who shot Lincoln. Wow. Does that mean that Jamie was forever going to be the person who shoots presidents? Because that's what Dad see the bird? Just duck. Sometimes they come in, they'll go right out. Jamie wasn't destined to be a murderer simply because she had a relative in her past who was. The sin visited on her from him. But we are so trained to blame. We want to find someone to blame. So we say, well, my mother read me the entire Harry Potter series. That's why I'm a witch. Or we say, Grandpa owned an adult bookstore, so I've got a porn problem. What could I do? Or maybe more seriously, my father was an alcoholic. What choice do I have? Alcoholism runs in the family, doesn't it? I don't want to be abusive, but that's what happened to me. I can't help what I do. It's just the way I was raised, and God would say, Stop! Stop! Sin is not genetically passed down. My sin now certainly can affect my kids, don't get me wrong. And our parents, or our parents' parents, or relatives in the past, and many of you can attest to this, have done things which have left us carrying some heavy, messy baggage. I'll grant you that. But you are not forced to follow the steps of the father, or the grandfather, or the great-grandfather, or Aunt Josephine. You don't have to do what they did. Yes, my sin can affect my kids, but God makes it clear. Each and every soul is answerable to God themselves for their behavior, for who they are, for what they do. I am accountable to one father alone. God the Father. And He does not penalize the children for the sins of their fathers. Well, that's an irresponsible proverb. Secondly, we have a parental problem. Flip over to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. Over in the New Testament, just keep going right. John chapter 9 and verse 1. Story involving Jesus, an interesting story. It has some fascinating caveats to it. I'll, I'll touch on a couple, but we don't have time to do the whole thing this morning. But watch this. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While well, I am in the world, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And when he said this, he sat on the ground and made clay of spittle and applied the clay to his eyes. And he said, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated Sent. And so he went away and washed and came back seeing. A couple things to know about this just to tuck away. This is the only instance of healing of blindness in the Gospels where we're told that the person was born blind. This wasn't just a reversal of blindness. LASIK surgery can do that, folks. Even people who have lost almost all vision, LASIK surgery has been able to restore vision. I had LASIK surgery a year ago. You guys look great. Still. Let me get a little little vague here, and and I know I'm probably going to need glasses for reading, but let's not go there. (laughs) Jesus here is not just restoring vision that was lost. He is creating vision anew. It's creation. This miracle is an act of creation. He is creating sight where sight did not before exist. Amazing. And he didn't use a laser. Instead he said, here's mud in your eye. (laughs) Mud. Now there are all kinds of cool reasons why he used mud. I'm not going to talk about those right now. But I want you to key in on the question of the rabbis in verse 2. The disciples asked them, Rabbi, who sinned? That this man or his parents uh, That he would be born blind Who sinned? Who's the culprit? Who do we blame? Here's this blind guy Whose fault was it? You see the rabbis taught one of two things Regarding birth defects They taught either that birth defects Are a sin from the womb That a child born with a birth defect Must have sinned in the womb I'm not kidding They taught this Genesis chapter 25 is where they draw it from because Genesis 25 talks about the mother Rebekah with Jacob and Esau in her belly. And the two boys in there are fighting. There's war going on in her stomach. Pregnant mothers, how much would you enjoy that? They're punching each other and kicking on the way out. One's grabbing the other's ankle. No, me, me. And so the rabbis read this true story where Rebecca's told you've got two nations at war in your stomach. And they say, see, you can sin in the womb. Isn't that great? You can sin before you even see the light of day. I mean, how could I? How could you do that? I think of all kinds of things. You know, that the child could be thinking or doing about the mother. You know, offensive hand gestures. Whatever. It's not true. But this is what the rabbis taught: that birth defects will result of sin in the womb, or or. Birth effects were a result of the sin of the parents, and they get it from Exodus 20 and Exodus 34. And they said sin is generational. You're born with a birth defect. Your parents sinned. For years, I wondered what my mother did to cause my cleft lip and cleft palate. What did mom do? Did she steal something as a child? Is that what went on? You know the reality. For this man to be born blind, someone had to have sinned, but it misses the whole point of who God the Father is. He's God the Father. I love this. John Corson says this. He's God the Father, not the Godfather. (laughs) Real difference there. The Godfather who is vengeful, who works out of vengeance, is very different than God the Father who works out of goodness. Well, doesn't the Bible talk about God having wrath and being vengeful? Yes. But it starts with His goodness. Even His vengeance flows out of His love. How can that possibly be? Well, Dad, what would you do if your daughter was raped? Would you want vengeance? Would you seek justice? And would it not be because you love your daughter so much? God's vengeance comes directly out of his goodness. This parental problem, gang, did my parents sin? Did the parents of this blind man sin? Or did God have something good in mind? Well, Jesus said in verse 3, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. You can't automatically equate a person's condition to sin. Now it's true, all suffering, all human suffering, we can say, is indirectly related to sin. Sin, somewhere along the line, is what causes the suffering in the world today. And I believe that. The fact that Adam and Eve sinned. Brought death into the world. And death causes suffering. So we know there's a connection between sin and suffering. But you cannot say that a child bears the punishment of other people's sins in the past. So Jesus clears up this parental problem. God does away with the irresponsible proverb. And finally, number three, we get an enlightening parable flip to the book of Luke, chapter 13. Last one, Luke chapter 13. One book back in the Bible. Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Interesting story and an enlightening parable. Watch this. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. In other words, there was a slaughter. And some guys came to Jesus and said, Did you hear about the slaughter of the Galileans? Watch what Jesus said. Verse 2. Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? Jesus knew what they were asking. They weren't just checking in with the news. They were saying, did these Galileans die because of their sins? And Jesus says, gang, listen, you suppose these Galileans were greater sinners because of their fate? Verse 3, I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? We could add, do you suppose the people in the towers on September 11th were more sinful than the rest of America? That they would be chosen? He goes on, verse 5, I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. When bad things happen in our lives, whether it be sin inflicted upon us by a parent, an aunt, a sibling, an uncle, or an outrageous tragedy or an illness strikes, the question we shouldn't be asking is not, why does this happen? The question we ought to be asking is, why does this happen, why doesn't it happen more often? Why isn't there more of this? I'll tell you why. Because of the goodness of God in this world, it is the only thing, His Spirit, that stems the tide of complete and utter despair and evil. Why doesn't this happen more often? Truth is, we all sin. We all deserve punishment, every single one of us. But we don't get what we deserve. Lamentation 3.19 Ezekiel writes, remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and the bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. But this I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases. His compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So what does God do with my sin? Well, listen to this parable. Verse 6 going on. Jesus began telling them a parable. A man, he said, planted a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard. I had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. It's a great parable. Let me give you a couple of keys here. The fig tree is Israel. Jesus is talking about Israel. The owner of the field is God, the vineyard keeper, Jesus. And it's interesting that this fig tree had grown without fruit for three years. How long had Jesus been in public ministry? three years so as he's in public ministry for three years Israel is not producing any fruit they're not getting it they're completely missing it and God to Jesus in the parable is saying cut it down and Jesus goes wait a minute wait a minute let's give it one more year there's something I can do here I'm going to dig around it fertilize it and then let's see if it produces some fruit that's where grace and mercy begin to kick in and the Lord does the same thing in your life and in mine what do you mean? Well, he digs around. He gets in there. He rolls up his sleeve. This vineyard keeper, Jesus, rolls up his sleeve and comes into your life and begins to dig. And you know what? It can be uncomfortable. It can can make you feel strange. He can use difficult circumstances in your life, but he begins to dig around and make room and make some changes. But as he digs around and gets to the root of our issues, guess what he finds? Sin. He finds sin with every one of us. He finds our rebellion. What he does not find is the behavior of our parents or our grandparents. He finds us, our roots, rotting. But then he does something. He fertilizes. He fertilizes by revealing to us, check us out, the manure of our lives. Which is what fertilizer is. Philippians 3 8, Paul says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. Something happens when you come into a relationship with Christ. You begin to see how awesome he is, how glorified he is, how wonderful and perfect he is. And in that light, you begin to see yourself. And your greatest accomplishment is manure in comparison. And all that you've been able to achieve in your life doesn't matter a whip. Next to Jesus, as He's digging around, rooting around in your soul, trying to make things right, fertilizing you with that realization that everything that I could possibly achieve is not enough. It's manure. It's fertilizer. But when I get that, when I understand that, Jesus... Can begin to grow fruit in my life and fruit that will last, not the stuff that we make that rots and falls off the tree. Now, there is a great connection with all these things to Exodus 34. Flip back there and we'll be done this morning. One more time, reading verse 7. The Lord who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin no erasing visiting the iniquity of the father on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations we still have to deal with this he's visiting the sin to every generation what does this mean? bottom line is this sin is sin and God is not going to change that He's not going to just kind of ignore it, just kind of let it go. Oh, well, everybody's sinning, so we're not going to call it sin anymore. We'll call it something else. We'll call it a genetic tendency. Or we'll develop medical names for it. Or we'll say, I was just born that way. And God says, no. No, sin was sin in Grandpa's generation. And sin was sin in your father's generation. And sin is sin in this generation. And it doesn't matter if you want to change the way things are called. It's still sin. It still exists. And God still will not give up. Look at what He's doing. He's going to visit sin in every generation. He visited the sin of my grandfather's generation and my father's and mine. What do you mean? He visited my sin's. He came to see my sin. Not to smash me, but to save me. And He does the same for you. God does not give up. He roots around. He fertilizes. He seeds the ground. He wants to save. And where does this tenacity come from? This, This fact that God will not quit. But he is doggedly going after every generation, visiting everyone, looking at the sin in everyone. Why doesn't he quit? Because of his nature. His nature, as I said before, is goodness. That was the first thing, by the way, he told Moses he was going to show him. Moses said back in Exodus thirty-three eighteen, 18, Show me your glory. And in verse 19, God said, I will show you my goodness. I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you. It's out of his goodness, out of his loving kindness, out of his grace, That God visits every generation, every individual and says, I'm looking at your sin and I want to deal with it. We may not want to, but God does. I want to deal with your sin. Why, Lord? I want to visit your sin so that I can take it away. Psalm 8, verse 3, the psalmist says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him? The son of man that you care for him. The term care for is literally visit. David nailed it. Who in the world am I, God, that you would visit me? What's so special about my generation that you would show up now? God will not give up on you. Your parents may have given up on you. Your grandparents may have considered you unworthy to have around. Family members may have abused your existence or missed your value, but God will not give up on you. He visits every generation, no erasing His loving kindness, His compassion, His graciousness, His truth. God keeps visiting. And I can't think of a more fleeting way to close our study of the book of Exodus, the book about redemption with this powerful truth. God does not give up. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him every generation, even yours. Let's pray. Father God what an awesome God you are you are so good to us and your grace and your mercy and your loving kindness is so overwhelming all these things Father are beyond compare and our lives are rubbish in comparison but even that Father you and your goodness take hold and you make it Something worthwhile God I can look back At my father's generation And I I know there were Some great believers In those days I can see why You visited them My grandfather's generation Some great men and women Of God I, I understand why You visited them And we continue going back To the days of Moses I understand why You visited him But I don't always understand why you would care to visit me and yet here it is laid out for us clearly in scripture you visit us to take away our sin oh thank you Lord thank you so much Jesus for we need a savior so we pray come come save us redeem us forgive us. If you have never given your life to the Lord,